a gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Utah's best athletes count on flexibility, speed, strength. And the Jazz pick up their 22nd assist. So they count on University of Utah Health. Brielle Soleil puts this game away. And so can you. Leading doctors, a world-class environment, award-winning innovation, care to be great. 14 unanswered by the Utes. University of Utah Health, caring for Utah's best and yours. Schedule your appointment now at uofuhealth.org slash care to be great. Fans of the Crimson Corner Podcast is powered by KSLSports.com. I'm your host and Utes Insider, Trevor Allen. So glad to have you guys aboard. We've got a big show coming up for you. We will talk to Quinton Ganther, former Utah running back, and is now currently the running back's coach up at Weber State under Jay Hill. And he's got a very interesting story that we're going to tell of how he got to Utah as a junior college transfer from Northern California. And that has led to five years in the NFL and then also now coaching at Weber State for the last seven years. But first, I know you guys all know about the story that came out on Friday, and that was that University of Utah football defensive coordinator Morgan Scally has been suspended indefinitely pending an investigation for a text message that he sent in 2013 to a recruit that involved a racial slur. Now, I'm just going to read out the uh, statements from Mark Harlan, Utah AD, Morgan Scally, and Kyle Whittingham. So first we'll start with the statement by Mark Harlan. He said, quote, On Wednesday night, I was made aware of a social media post that referenced a 2013 text message that included racist language sent by our football program's defensive coordinator, Morgan Scally. I initiated conversations with our campus partners, including President Watkins, and we agreed to have an outside firm review this matter to seek further details and determine whether this was an isolated incident. Coach Scally and I have spoken. He is very contrite and acknowledged that The text was sent and that it did include a derogatory and painful word. The use of any form of racist language is not only antithetical to our policies and our values, it is an affront to all of us, especially our African-American community members. While the review of this matter is being conducted, I have placed Morgan on suspension effective immediately. Then after Harlan released his statement on that same release from Utah, Scally said the following, quote, In 2013, I made a terrible mistake. I used a racial slur in a text message. This language is offensive and hurtful to not only the African-American community, but to all. Immediately after sending it, I apologized to the recipient and his family. I am also heartbroken over the potential breach of trust with my fellow coaches and with the young men in our program, both past and present. 
I am truly sorry and I own up to the hurtful effects of my choice. Through my actions and words going forward, I will demonstrate that my use of that slur in 2013 does not reflect or define who I am or what I stand for. My action is indefensible and I will use my voice and position to bring about meaningful and much needed change. I accept the university's suspension and will use it as a time to reflect on my insensitive comment from 2013 and how I intend to listen and grow from this situation. I am completely against racism, and this will never happen again. Close quote. And then head coach Kyle Whittingham said the following quote, I was disappointed and shocked to learn this week of a text message sent by Morgan Scally in 2013 that contained a racial slur. I take very seriously the hurt, pain, and anger felt by African Americans and the power of words to inflict or deepen that pain. Although this incident is inconsistent with the character and conduct of the person I have known and worked closely with for more than two decades, Morgan's use of racist language is a very serious matter, and I am supportive of the suspension while a more thorough outside review is conducted. Close quote. Now, going through Twitter, which I know is a great idea, right? And seeing all the reaction from it, that the uh, text message that was sent to the recruit happened to be former Utah wide receiver Raylan Singleton. What happened was, and I'll, I'll, I'll kind of back up a little bit. So on May 29th, Morgan Scally sent out a tweet regarding the recent death of George Floyd in Minneapolis. And, and he said the following, What happened on Memorial Day in Minnesota won't leave my mind. The video sickened me. The senseless, cruel killing of George Floyd is inexcusable and indefensible. Many of my dearest friends and brothers are men of color, and I can't imagine my life without their love or influence. I think of the young men of color I have coached and continue to coach, and am heartbroken that any of them would have to live with the very real fear that racism presents. Our nation has to be better. I'm grateful for, for a Utah football family that embraces the strength that diversity provides and the powerful love it evokes. So after Scally sent that, that tweet, there was this random account on Twitter who replied to Scally and said, and I'm actually paraphrasing here because I don't have the uh, tweet in front of me, and that person has since deleted the account, bringing up the uh, text message that had a racial slur in it in 2013 to a college recruit. And, and that was what was brought to the attention of Mark Harlan. And then Harlan talked to Scally, Scally admitted it, and so on. Now, that tweet was not from Raylan Singleton. And from what it sounds like on Twitter, because on Sunday, Raylan Singleton tweeted out, I don't know who was behind that Twitter page trying to kill this man's credibility. I don't get down like that. We all make mistakes, but Scally showed me nothing but love while I was in Utah, along with the rest of the coaching staff, and I'm forever grateful for that. So we're wondering where that came from, how they were able to find out about this and bring it up. Obviously, the other part is, why are we just finding out about this now in 2013? It's from something that happened in 2013, and we are in 2020. Again, I'm just stating facts here. I'm guessing we'll probably know sometime later this week on the future of Morgan Scally. But you guys can read more on the reaction from former players and current players uh, at Utah after the news of Morgan Scally being suspended. And then also the actual story with, with all the statements from Mark Harlan, Kyle Whittingham, and Morgan Scally up at kslsports.com. I'm really excited about our next guest. He's a guy that I've been getting to know over the last few months, especially after that great Ute debate. And so I'm going to bring him in to kind of tell his story of how he got to Utah 
and now he's coaching under Jay Hill up at Weber State. He has one of the best running backs in not only the uh, Big Sky Conference, but probably in the entire state of Utah. We'll talk about that and all and more. And from his time at Utah as well and playing in the league, we go to Quinton Ganther, former Ute and current Weber State running back coach. Quinton, what's up, man? Hey, what's going on, man? How you guys doing today? Doing good. So I kind of just want to, you know, you were kind of have a different path than some of these other guys who've come to Utah and obviously had a great career in your two years at Utah. You grew up in, in Northern California. What was that like? Uh, <laughs> uh, how honest do you want me to be? <laughs> as honest as you want to be. Well, my life was a little different, man. I grew up, uh, I grew up in, you know, poverty, inner city type deal. And, and, you know, I grew up with my, my parents that, you know, they were on drugs and, you know, so my life, my life was a little harder. My my father was in and out of prison, you know, and then when he wasn't in prison, he was on drugs. My mother was on drugs. Um, I mean, it was just, it was just a tough upbringing. You know, I had to grow up really, really fast and learn how to kind of fend for myself and take care of myself. Um, you know, by the time I was seven years old, I was cooking full-blown meals on my own, trying to take care of me and my sister, because if I didn't cook and I didn't figure it out, then I didn't eat. You know, it was situations like that where I lived with everyone in my family, from grandmothers to aunts to uncles, to uh, I was, you know, kind of brought in and, and got adopted by a family, you know, when I was around 11 years old, who kind of looked out for me and took care of me and and allowed me to have the success that I'm having. But um, it was, my, my life was different, man. It was it was a different up, up, upbringing than a lot of these kids today. What led you to be able to play the game of football? Because, you know, it sounds like you were you were moving around a lot. How'd you have time? And not only that, but find that passion to play the game of football. Well, I, I was a baseball guy. You know, really? everyone I grew up with thought I was going to play professional baseball, um, you know, because I, I grew up with kids who were older than me. So I had I was forced to, you know, be tough and, and, and hold my own. You know, I was seven, eight years old, and the guys that I were hanging out with was 13 and 14 years old. So they had a big age gap on me, and I, and, I, and I fell in love with baseball, you know. And then, you know, my parents couldn't afford for me to play football, and, you know, my mom didn't want me to play football. So, you know, the first time I ever played football, uh, my godparents kind of enrolled me in football, and my real parents didn't even know. You know, at first, they didn't know I was playing football. You know, that, just, that goes back to, you know, let you know some of the upbringing, how, you know, my kids can't leave my house and I not know where they are and have an understanding of where they're going. I mean, I was standing with my, with my godparents for weeks at a time and my mother and father hadn't even met them. They didn't even know who they were. You know, their kids just off, you know, with some random people. So you obviously ended up playing in college and in the pros. When did you think you were good enough to play college football? Um, it was always a dream of mine. It was always a dream of mine to play college football. And it wasn't, the dream wasn't, I want to play college football. My dream was always, I want to play on TV. I wanted to see myself on TV in whatever aspect that that was. I wanted to, you know, be on television. So, you know, again, as I was a Bay Area sensation, you know, in the Bay Area, you mentioned my name and people know my name. They talk about me a little different, you know, in the aspects, whereas I, I hit a growth spurt at the age of 12 and I literally dominated the Bay Area in in football, you know, and and I just kept getting better and better. And I just knew I was different. You know, I was blessed. I was gifted. I knew I was different. 
So, you know, when I went to high school, you know, I went to four different high schools. Um, I started off in Berkeley at Berkeley High School. It's right down the street from Cal, University of California, Berkeley. Um, then from there, I went to Fairfield High School. And then from there, I went to Vanden High School. From Vanden High School, I went back to Fairfield High School. From Fairfield High School, I went back to Richmond and graduated from Kennedy High School. So, you know, throughout everything that was going on in my life, the moving around, the getting in trouble, I wasn't always a saint. I'm not going to say I was a saint. The getting in trouble, the lashing out because of, you know, the lack of attention I was receiving from my parents or the upbringing that I was being brought up in, um, football was something that I fell in love with. And I still played baseball all throughout high school as well. You know, at one point I had the batting average record uh, at my, one of my high schools that I attended. Um, like I said, everyone thought I was going to play professional baseball and I just fell in love with hitting people. And once I realized that I was different and what I mean by different is the game came easy to me. It was it was easy for me. I was just so much more talented than everyone else. It was easy for me, you know, and it was it, it blows my mind sometimes where, you know, Marshawn Lynch, he looks at me as his big brother. You know, he calls me big brother. He says he wanted to be me when he was a kid. You know, he looked up to me when he was a kid, you know, and he wanted to be like me like that. Stuff like that makes me feel, you know, it makes me feel good. So I knew I had something going on that, uh, I wanted to go to college now and I wanted to play professional. I figured that if I went and played professional, then it can kind of rewrite a lot of the wrongs that I had going on in my life. And that's kind of what my vision was. My vision was to play professional. I just hit a lot of hiccups along the way. You know, I had a child in high school, you know, I had my daughter early and, you know, I kind of got expelled out of high school. You know, one of, those high schools, I've been suspended multiple times. And it got to a point where, as I said, hey, I just have to make a change. You know, I have to make a change if this is what I really want. If I want to go to college and I want to play professional, there's some things in my life that had to change. So what led you to pick the game of football over baseball? Because it sounded like you probably could have gone either way. And you mentioned that you liked hitting people, but, you know, playing as a tailback, that's a little bit different. But obviously had records playing baseball. Why pick football? Well, I picked football because uh, I actually, I wanted to play, I wanted to play baseball in college. Um, after my first year of junior college, I, uh, after the season was over, you know, my body was really, really sore. And I just, I just wanted a break and baseball. They were already training, you know, they were already going on and I needed a break. And when I needed to break, you know, the baseball coach at the time, you know, he wanted me to come now and, it was at my, it was at my junior college. And at that point I, I, I didn't want to go. I, I needed some time off. You know, I wanted my body to be able to heal. And, and that's kind of how I gave up baseball is because after football was over, you put so much into it, you know, you just, I just needed a break. And that's the same way, you know, in, you know, in college and in the NFL and, you know, when the season is over, you don't want to do anything else. You want to just, relax for a few weeks you want to take some time off to gather your thoughts get your body back together because you know it's brutal it's a brutal sport when you were a uh engineer college you ended up being a uh, all-american which yes. means you know you were really really good and uh, you probably had tons of offers how many offers did did you have coming out of junior college i don't know the exact number i just the ones that stuck out to me 
um, was uh, the first one was an Oregon. Um, then I got Washington State. Uh, then I got University of Tennessee. Uh, then I got the University of Utah. Then I got Texas A&M. Um, I was getting a lot of big time offers. Um, I actually led the state of California and Russian my sophomore year. And um, I had offers to a lot of places. So why Utah over, you, you mentioned Tennessee, Texas A&M, Oregon, Washington State. Back then, Utah was in the Mountain West Conference. You had, you had offers from schools that were in bigger conferences. Why Utah? Well, the thing is, is I didn't understand the conference. I didn't know. I was an inner city kid who dreamed just as the play on TV. I had no idea what a Mountain West Conference was. I had no idea what a Pac-10 conference was or SEC conference. I had no clue. I just knew it was college football. And and to me, I thought it was all the same. I didn't know there was a difference between any of the conferences. I didn't know. I thought if you went to a bowl game, you went to a bowl game. I didn't know you have bowl games and then you have BCS bowl games. You know, mm-hmm. so I was I was naive because no one no one had ever really played college football that I had been around or grown up around to kind of take me under their wing and explain to me, you know, the difference in conferences and the difference in level of play. And, and things like that. So I didn't know. So um, when people say, man, how did you go to Utah? It's like, I, I went to Utah because I chose Utah for, of my heart, not because of the school. You know, nowadays you see these kids, they're picking schools because of the name of the school yep. and it bites them in their butt. That's why you're seeing so many guys transferring out because they're, they're, they're signing up um, because the name of a school they're not signing up for the right fit for you as a person at that school where you can really thir- you know, you can really flourish. You obviously spent two years at Utah in your senior year, you had over 1100 yards. Um, that was the year after you guys busted the BCS in that great team back, back in 2004. So as you look at your two years at Utah and obviously you live in Utah now, but what is your time at the university of Utah meant to you? Well, it's, it's, see, I, I have different outlooks from different perspectives because I was here as a player and now I'm here as a coach. And, you know, one thing that I loved about Utah was uh, I felt accepted as for the first time when Urban Meyer was recruiting me and the staff, I had never felt like I could let my guard down because living in the inner city, everything you have to, you have to watch. You can't trust anyone. You have to watch. You have to have your guard up. And it was the first time that I felt like I could let my guard down. Like, okay, I'm going to college. Now I'm around a lot of guys that look like me, you know, but also have the same goals as me. You know, they're, you know, they're all striving to be, you know, a college graduate or go to the professional level or do things like that. So um, it was, it was different in that aspect that Utah first, you know, and this is why I'm still here today. It was, it was a place where I can first let my guard down and be and be real and relax and be free, you know, and, and allow myself to be vulnerable and allow myself not to be on guard and, you know, turning my head and watching my back every step I took. So that's what you You obviously stay close to the program, and but you you went on to play in the league. You played five years in the league. You played with four different teams. What was it like playing in the league? 
Uh, it was different. It was it was yeah. different, man, because I had my vision of the league was my vision of the league was much different than the reality of the league. So I had vision that everyone just worked so hard. You know, you you work hard, you perform, and you know you have these luxury luxury careers. You know, everyone gets to buy their mom a house, this big old house, this big 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 life and big way of living. And when I got there, it was nothing like that. I mean, I've seen guys talking back to coaches. I've seen guys cursing out coaches. Um, I see guys that, you know, if they don't want to practice, they don't practice. Um, and then you got little old me coming from the University of Utah. I'm finally where I want to be. You know, I've, I've, I've reached the pinnacle of success by getting to the NFL and I'm busting my butt and I'm busting my butt and I'm busting my butt. And really it didn't, it didn't matter. You know, it didn't matter. I mean, if you got first round, second round picks in front of you, that's going to play. No matter what you do, they're going to play, you know, and that's kind of how it was. So, you know, I didn't really swallow that pill and understand the business of it until going into my third year. And in my third year of the league, I, I finally realized like, no matter what I do, it's not going to ever be enough. So what I started doing was just focusing on special teams. You know, I stopped focusing on trying to play running back. I just started focusing on special teams and playing special teams. And that's kind of how I, how I lasted in the league, you know, because I had all these backs, you know, these first round picks. I had, you know, my first year I had Travis Henry, who was a first round pick to Buffalo. Then I had Chris Brown, who was like a fourth round pick to from Colorado, but he got drafted to Tennessee. You know, and then we got Walter Payton's son, Jerry Payton, who I don't think he was a draft pick. But then you got a guy named Damian Nash, who was a fourth, fifth round pick out of Missouri. And then you go out and you draft Lindell White in the second round. And and it's like, okay, then you get me in the seventh round. See me, all I thought was I just had to work hard and I can beat these guys out by outperforming them and outworking them. And I little did I know I had no chance. I was drafted to be cut. Well, and White was also the backup to Reggie Bush in college. Yeah. So, you know, the fact that he still got drafted higher and he wasn't even the starting running back in college. Yeah. So it was, it was, it was, it was me. It, it, it became so much of a business that it started to kind of take the love out of the game for me because a lot of these kids, they think that they're just going to go and have these careers. And it's like, hold on, this is a business. So your feelings don't count at this level. You know, your opinions don't count at this level. When you were done playing in the league and when, when your playing career was over, you could have gone and started the other part of your life, you know, life after the game anywhere. You could have stayed yeah. at, you know, one of the spots where you, you, where you played in the league. You could have gone back to, to Northern California. You chose Which to I make did. your home in Utah. Why is that? I did. Well, I did. I, I have a home in Northern California as well. Yeah. So I bought a home there, um, and that's where I was residing. Uh, one thing that I wanted to do was I wanted to make sure I finished school. Um, so uh, I wanted to go back to school. So when I decided that I wasn't going to play anymore, I had a couple offers to go play in the CFL and, and you know, possibly in the NFL again. And I was just tired, like mentally. It wasn't the physical part of it. It was the mental part of it. You know, at, at, after going into my fourth year in Tennessee, you know, I had started traveling, um, you know, signing one-year deals with different teams and, you know, going and going from this place to this place to this place. And it was like, you know what? I want to take control of my own life back. So uh, let me finish, let me finish my degree 
and get on with life. So one thing I did was I went back to school. You know, I, I know I didn't have much left. I think I had like a year left to finish. So I called Utah and uh, wanted to get my credits, wanted to get my transcripts to see how much I had left. And and then at that point, they were like, okay, well, we'll come on in and, you know, come in, we'll pay for your schooling and things like that. So what they try to make it seem like they're doing you a favor when reality, they just wanted that retention point. They wanted my APR point back. <laughs> so, because if you graduate, you get that point back going towards your academic success of the university. So anyway, because the NFL would have paid for my schooling, you know, because as, as, as long as you want to go back to school, the NFL will pay for your school. Um, but anyway, so they told me to come back in and uh, they said, okay, well, what about helping us be a, a, assist, a student assistant coach? You know, you can come in and kind of help coach these guys up a little bit and, you know, yada, yada, yada. So I'm like, okay, well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. I'll think about it, you know. So I came back and kind of got my feet wet with coaching. I had no idea what it would be like because I never wanted to be a coach. Being a coach was not something that I wanted to do. And um, it was crazy because going into my third year in the league, I had a coach by the name of Ernest Biner. And Ernest Biner, he told me, he said, Q, when you're done playing, you're going to be a coach. And I said, EB, why you say that? I don't want to be a coach. And, and, his, and his words to me was, you have a way of simplifying things. You have a way of simplifying things so that we understand it. See, a lot of coaches these days, they like to talk big and, and use big words and, you know, try to be really, really smart. But that doesn't help you because you're not playing. The best thing that you can do is simplify it to make sure your guys understand it. It's not what I know. It's about what I can get you to know. And I don't care what analogy I have to use. I use stuff that has nothing to do with football. I just need my guys to retain the information, you know, and, and, and he saw in me that I had the ability to do that. So he was like, you're going to be a coach. So then you fast forward back to Utah. So I get here and, and when I get back, you know, I'm going to classes, I'm doing my classes and, you know, I'm, you know, in, in some of the staff meetings and in the position meetings and just, just being able to teach these guys and give them my experiences and help them. And at that time, I, I mean, these guys have just seen me playing on Monday night football or on, you know, and I'm in the room with them now. So they, they, they respected it and they listened to me, you know, and I just started falling in love with coaching. You know, I didn't even want to be a coach. I had no desire whatsoever to be a coach. And that student assistant stint that I had in 2012 at the University of Utah turned me into a full-time coach. So where'd you end up going from there? Uh, because, you know, a student coach, oh. I mean, that, that isn't a, a guaranteed spot. And, you know, but you're, you're now a coach. So what led you to Weber State? So, so from 2012, what I ended up doing was I said, okay, I'll be a coach. So, uh, you know, the NFL has these minority internships that they do. And um, in order to get one of them, you, you got to have a letter, you, you have to have a letter of recommendation. So my letter of recommendation, I called, I had played in Seattle in 2010. So I called uh, the running back coach in Seattle in 2010, who was the running back coach in Tennessee when I was drafted there in Tennessee, who was also the offensive coordinator in 2009 with the Washington Redskins when I went to the Redskins, 
who then became the running back coach with the Seahawks. And then I went with him to the Seahawks and he took me everywhere that he went um, because I set the tone for his groups. You know, I knew how he wanted it. I knew how he wanted to work. I knew how he wanted to prepare. So I set the tone in the groups. So that way it made it easier on him coaching because like, Hey, Q was the example, do what he do, you know, do what he, and this is the NFL, you know, Q's example, do what he do, watch how he works, watch how he studies and he'll show you how to be a professional. And that's kind of how that went. So I called him for a letter of recommendation. Um, like, Hey coach, you know, I'm thinking about getting an internship, you know, can I get a letter of recommendation? So what he said was, okay, I write you a letter of recommendation. So I left him a message actually, cause he didn't answer. I left a message and he called me back the next day. He was like, man, I just got done talking to Pete, which was Pete Carroll. He said, I just got done talking to Pete. Pete said, if you want to coach, we need, we might as well bring you in here, you know, come on in here. So after, after the 2012 season ended at Utah, 2013, I was with the Seattle Seahawks as an intern. You know, I was at, with the Seahawks in 13 as an intern. And then Coach Hill gets the job at Weber State in 14 and calls me to come coach the running backs in 14. Because Coach Hill, when I was there in 2012, you know, Coach Hill played DB for University of Utah. Yep. And he was just happened to be the running backs coach. So with Coach Hill being the running backs coach, now I'm pretty much his assistant, you know, for 2012. So now I'm showing him you know, some running back drills, some things to do and some things to look at. And so we're kind of learning from each other. So when he got a chance to be a head coach, you know, I, I worked with him and developed a relationship with him one-on-one a lot of the time because we're together all the time now. You know, I'm his assistant running back coach. He's coaching running back. So he knows my philosophies. He knows what I expect. He knows my expectations. He knows, you know, that I know how to coach the room. He so when he got the job, he's like, oh, this is a no-brainer. This is my running backs coach. So that's kind of how I got started. You've been there now for seven years, basically. What is the best part about being a college football coach? The best part for me is changing lives. And, and that's the best part for me because I didn't have the best life growing up. You know, I've seen things as a kid that no kid should see. You know, I've heard things as a kid that no kid should hear. So this is almost like my way of protecting kids and, and, and being brutally honest with them. One thing I won't do is lie to a kid. You know, I got some kids that say, man, you too hard on us sometimes. Like you, you're too honest, you know, because that's what, as a player, that's what I always want. Like, don't give me no fluff. Tell me, tell me what it is, you know, be honest with me. So that way I can accept it. I can change it. Or I can choose not to change it. And I can go somewhere else. These kids are part of my family. A lot of, a lot of kids say that, I mean, a lot of coaches say that, you know, they are uh, their family, but when the kids leave, you know, they'll never hear from them again. You know, me, I try to keep in contact with my players. You know, I had a player who just uh, two years ago who got uh, inducted. I mean, he got, um, he's a police officer now. So I went to his graduation, you know, to, you know, to see that, you know, these are things that I want to see and be a part of because these kids changed my life just like I changed their life because I'm in Utah, you know, no family, you know, so these kids are my family. So it's, it's different for me because I accept these kids into my home. You know, I make sure they don't want for anything. And I, and I be everything that I tell their parents I'm going to be when I go in their homes and recruit. What is the hardest part 
about being a college football coach? Is it everything else? The hardest part is loving these kids so much. I am so invested in their futures and everything that goes on along with them. So the hardest part is when they fail or they don't do right, I lose sleep at night literally because I feel like it's my fault. Because a lot of the times, 85, 90% of your job has nothing to do with football. And this is not like the University of Utah where you got 50 people on your support staff helping out. Like we are our support staff. You know, we are we are the academic advisors. We are the counselors. We are the class checkers. We are, you know, the mediators. We, we're everything to these kids. You know, we don't have a lot of people helping us out to, to divvy out, you know, responsibilities. We're engulfed in these kids' lives. And when you're so hands-on with kids, you have no way or choice but to love them, you know, because they're, they're your life. They're your livelihood. So just the hardest part is not seeing a kid flourish the way you know he can. Because a lot of times, man, these kids, they're so, they're young. You know, they're young. They're, they're not always guided the right way. And one thing that we can agree with across the country, if you're a college football coach, these kids come in 17, 18 years old, they all think they know everything. Yeah. You know, they, they think they know it all. You know, so seeing them fail and you act because when you when they're at the early stage of their life you care more than they do you know you care what happens to them more than they do because they're so young they think there's always going to be a tomorrow or they think oh i can fix this next year or i can fix this one no you can't you know that that's not promised to us you know anything can happen so you know just that's the part man i want to see all these kids succeed You've actually got a pretty good running back up at Weaver right now. Talk about Josh Davis a little bit. Josh Davis is – he's everything you – he's hes me – he's hes to me what I was to Sherman Smith. He's the guy who knows what I want. He knows the expectation. He knows the level, and he's the one who sets the tone. I don't have to tell him. He knows already. We've been through that, you know, but with that kid, man, he's a kid who – First off, he's very, very competitive. He is a competitor. He is tough. You know, because a lot of people, they, you know, they'll look at him and they'll be like, hold on, this isn't, this isn't Josh, is it? This is, you know, he's a little small, teeny white kid, you know, so they're not thinking that this is who he is. But when he gets on that football field, he turns into a different person. You know, he turns, he is, he's very smart. I can teach him next level teaching. I can, you know, I'm big on pre-snap reads and things like that. I can, I can make sure he understands where the ball goes or where it's going to go before the ball is snapped. He understands these type of things. He understands protections. He can run routes. He has really good hands. He can return kicks. He can return punts. He can do it all. When did you know he was going to be special? Because he came in really, really young and uh, came in right away and was already breaking records. When did you think Josh Davis was going to be special? Well, I knew he was going to be good. I didn't know he was going to be special. And the reason I say that, because when he came in as a freshman, you know, he redshirted. Yeah. So when he came in as a freshman, he was making a lot of mistakes. He was doing what typical freshmen do. Because one thing about me and the way I teach, 
90% of guys, 95% of guys is going to take you a year plus to get everything that I'm teaching you because I'm not teaching you as a high school kid or as a college kid. I'm teaching you as an NFL guy because that's what I know. So I'm te- so when you ever, if you ever get a chance to leave here and go and play at the next level, you will be the most prepared guy in the room. That's just, that's my job to make sure of that. Um, and I knew he was going to be special when he started to get it because he couldn't get it. If I, I used to, I used to get on his case every day because he wasn't getting it at first, but none of them were. I mean, you ask, if you interview anybody in my room, I guarantee you, they all say at one point they wanted to quit. They wanted to quit because the bar is up here. That's what the bar is. And I'm not bringing it down here to cater to your feelings. You're going to reach the bar. But one thing they love about me is I am the same way with everyone. I'm the same way with everyone. If you look and see, I had three all-league running backs this year. Yeah. Three all-league running backs. That's unheard of. You know, I had three, I had three different guys run for over 100 yards in the game this year alone. Over three guys run for over 100 yards in a game. You don't see things like that. And Josh can tell you, too. Josh is my starter. He sets the tone. But let Josh have a bad practice or a bad work week or take a day off because he feel like he's the man. Josh will be at the back of the line. That's just how it works. But what that does, it keeps the level of competition high in the room. Because a lot of coaches, they tell you, okay, well, we're competing, we're competing. But when you got a clear-cut number one, he know he's not competing. Well, Josh is my clear-cut number one, but he's also my number three or four also. Because depending on the week. Depending on the week. And he'll tell you that. But but what it does is it allows these kids to understand that I'm I'm demanding perfection out of you, but it's not for nothing. It's not for nothing because everyone can play. You know, and you want to kind of build your room like that. And I want to build my room like that, too, because these guys got to understand if you have a bad week in the NFL, you miss a practice or you, you, you know, you're just making a lot of mistakes. You know, depending on who you are, you're gone. You know, they're, they're going to replace you. Yep. So what I need to do is if these guys ever get a chance to play at that level, they have to be prepared uh, and understand what they're walking into. And that's my job to make sure they understand and that's my job to make sure they understand the game of football as a next level running back would. You know, the thing about that, you know, keeping these guys honest and really making sure that, that they're bringing their A game every single practice, not even just every single week or every single game, and also treating every single player the same. You don't see that much in college. No, you don't see it. It's, 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 it's un, and, 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 and don't take my word for it. You can ask Coach Hill. You can ask Josh Davis. Mm-hmm. That's why I've had so many guys. I should have had four all league running backs, really. Yeah. I should have had four guys go all league because the second the guy who didn't get all league, he was second in the league in touchdowns. You know, mm-hmm. but he didn't get anything. You know, but it what it what it does is it gives you a different level of credibility and respect from the players. Because how I demand my guys to work. And the things that I demand of these dudes, I can't demand that of a kid to to go out and give me his all on a daily basis. And in the back of his mind, he has no chance of ever touching the field. Do you know how hard that is as a kid mentally? 
to because I'm asking you to give me everything you have every day. But by the way, hey, you know you're not going to play. Yeah, you're not going to play. You know, so so it, it it keeps the level of competition very very high, and these guys embrace it, and that's why you know when it, before it's all said and done, I'll have I'll be a I'll you know I'll have four of the top ten running backs ever at Weber State. I've I've coached them. When it's all said, four of the top ten running backs in the history of the school, I would have coached by the end of this year. So it sounds like Weaver's going to have a pretty good year. I've already done, you know, stories on Weaver. You guys, you know, for Athlon, you guys came in number three in in all of the FCS uh, rankings going into this season. So it means you guys are probably, I mean, you guys are ranked higher than than uh, James Madison. So it sounds like it's probably going to be a pretty good year for Weaver State. We hope so. We we can say it's going to be a good year, but hey, who knows? Who knows? But we're going to strive and we're going to prepare for it to be a good year. That's what we're going to do day in and day out. But we'll see how the season goes. I don't want to give them too much credit. All Last it is, it's just hum- all, right. all you're doing is being humble right now, Q. You know you guys are going to be good. <laughs> I'll just say, hey, a few inches can bring any team down. All right, we'll end on this. Um, you know, some of the recent events that are going on around the country with uh, some of the protesting and obviously what happened with George Floyd and others. Uh, what I'm going to kind of do is just turn the floor over to you just to give your thoughts on on what's been going on around our country. Oh, man, it's, it's been a lot of, a lot of uh, unfortunate events going on. Um, one of the most unfortunate parts is, you know, how African-Americans are treated. Um, and, and with that being said, I, I think a lot of people didn't know that it really existed. You know, uh, they said, okay, well, and, and I'm not the type of guy who wants to keep pointing it out. Like, I don't like to talk about it, really because I don't want to be that angry black man, you know, that, that angry black man where he's always making excuses. Cause I don't make excuses. I get up and go to work every day. I don't ask for handouts. You know, I, I've had a terrible situation, but I've never made that as an excuse where I wasn't able to succeed because my childhood was screwed up. You know, that's, that's not who I am. Um, I'm glad that light is starting to be shined on the, the, the issues that we have in our country. Um, I'm also glad that, uh, you know, a lot of, you know, of my white friends and a lot of white people that I know are starting to stand up and understand, like, hey, we're not just talking. You know, we're trying to tell you guys something. No one's listened to us. But now with the video cameras and the social media, you know, everyone is starting to really see what's been going on for years upon years upon years. But we've just never had any proof of it before. And, you know, a lot of people were getting away with things that they shouldn't be shouldn't be saying, shouldn't be tolerated. And now it's coming to the forefront. Um, you know, just the treatment of how things are going. But one thing I can say, I think our country is headed in the right direction, you know, and addressing these issues with the peaceful protesting. And I think it'll be, uh, I think things will start to change. Well, Q, you obviously, that was a great story of, of, of how you got to Utah and everything you had to go through and still managed to play in the league and stuff. And, you know, and obviously what you're doing, not only for Weber State football, but of what, what you still do as an alumni for Utah. You know, it's always great to hear guys like you and, you know, tell their stories. And I really do appreciate you allowing me to tell that story or to no help you tell that story. I appreciate you. I appreciate you for giving me the opportunity. And, um, hey, I am who I am and I accept me and I'm me unapologetically. But one thing I know about me is I care about people and I want to see people succeed. And it obviously shows in, in the way you coach. So, uh, and, you know, if I was young enough, I would go to Weaver State just to play for you. So, 
Hey, I appreciate that. <laughs> we still we still recruiting, even though we, we got corona and we can't get out through the dead period. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was gonna say it's it's still kind of I mean it, it says dead period, but you guys can still talk to recruits just virtually, right? We can talk to her, yes, we can talk to them, we just can't have any contact. That's I mean <laughs> This is definitely a weird year. I, I guess it kind of puts you guys to that test to really test your guys' limits on what you guys can do. Oh, yeah. So it's been different. It's, a, it's been a weird different, but it's been different. Well, Q, it's always good to catch up with you, man. We'll definitely have to do it soon. Thanks again for joining me. No problem at all. And there you go. That was Quinton Ganther. Such a great story. I mean, I had no idea because, again, I've talked to Quinton probably a couple of times before I hosted the Great Youth Debate where we had – um, Brian Johnson, Quinton Ganther, Eric Weddle, and Stevenson Sylvester on. Since then, I've really gotten to know and, quite frankly, become friends with, with Quinton Ganther. And so to find that out was really touching and to see everything that he went through and he was still able to make it to the NFL and had a great career in college and is now really thriving up at Weaver State. He's doing some great things. He has some great players that he's coaching up in Ogden. All right, well, that'll do it for this edition of the Crimson Corner Podcast. Coming up later this week, we will preview the cornerbacks coming up for the 2020 Utah football team. You guys can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Trevor A. Sports, and also follow our KSL Sports accounts on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at KSL Sports. Until then, thank you for listening. This has been the Crimson Corner Podcast, powered by KSLSports.com. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andreas Martin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.